This is the Capital City Podcast. My name is Joshua Barda, and uh, had the privilege of meeting Jordan, I think, and Aubrey a couple of years ago. And then when uh, First Free, the church that helped send us here, um, invited him in to share, and I had heard that they were going to be planting this church, uh, Rose and I and, and our kids jumped on that, and we had to walk through the season of, with our kids of leaving a very familiar place to a new place, and uh, not that we as adults are better at transitions than kids, because we might not be, um, but we had to shepherd them through the hope of what we thought would be, and here we are about a year later since we kind of really started meeting and whatnot, and it's just a real great testimony to the Lord's faithfulness. I think our kids, other kids and families and singles have really loved being a part of Capital City. And for, for those of you that are here for the first time, and some friends and family, thanks so much for being here tonight. There's a couple words from the, the last song that I thought would be a good prayer for our hearts as we dive in here, so join me. Lord, we could never keep our hold through life's fearful path. I'll make this one personal for myself. For my love, Lord, you know is often cold. You must hold me fast. Father, um, you know that our love grows cold. It is fickle and it is not at times what we desire it to be maybe especially if we've been walking with you, Jesus, for a long time. But tonight, would you remind us through a wonderful story in the Old Testament how amazing is your pursuit of us despite our coldness, our hardness of heart, our waywardness to lift our eyes to your greatness, the God who keeps us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Famine in the land, three men dead, three widows left with very little hope for a future. That was message one of three in this book of Ruth that we're going to walk through. This is week two that Jordan shared about last week. And that was just the beginning of the book of Ruth. Let me recap a little bit more. Bethlehem literally means house of bread was struck with a famine, a people who depends completely, you know, so much for their daily source uh, of bread as a staple of food were without it. And at least one family that the story shares, the family of Elimelech, his wife, Naomi, and two sons, Kilian and Malin, they decide to skip town and head around the Dead Sea to Moab in search of food. Strangely, Moab is has a really ugly story of origin, and uh, it's just not a place, steeped in child sacrifice, it's not a place Israelites would go. Tragically, within 10 years, Elimelech dies, his two sons die also. They had married Moabite women, they leave Naomi, which leaves Naomi widowed, and these two daughter-in-laws. Yet as massive as these three losses were, Naomi's loss appears far worse. 
She's older, unlikely to remarry. I put it this way. She's basically headed for a black hole, a deep and bottomless pit into which she would descend and die without hope. And that, that's some pretty significant imagery, but that's really what it was for women widowed in that day, especially at her age. Jordan keyed us in on some of the cultural realities for a widow at that age. Little hope to remarry. Men ruled the day in ancient society. No one left to protect or provide for her. And finally, upon hearing that God had brought food again to Bethlehem, Naomi decides to return, and ur- but urges her daughters-in-law to stay. Orpah, as we wise Christians would do, would call hers the wise decision. She stayed. She has a chance to remarry, start a new life. Ruth, very contrast here. She decides to risk her, inf- her entire future. She's young. The hope of a husband and children, she leaves everything that's familiar and goes to a foreign land and people. And in fact, the scripture says she clung to Naomi. She made an oath to Naomi's God and ultimately she said, Naomi, I will die where you will die. There I will be buried. So in in that day, you say something like that to another person you've bound yourself to to that for life. So if you're sitting here tonight and you're human, you can relate that life doesn't always make sense. We wonder where God's grace is in the midst of unknown situations we find ourselves in. Painful things. Sometimes even deep fears about our future. Lord, is is that job going to pop up? Are we going to be able to have children Why am I still single? Tonight we continue on a journey through what I would call one of God's greatest masterpieces. It's the story of Ruth, part two of three. You might not walk away with every answer to some of your life's questions and the plans that have turned upside down. I do believe you'll walk away with your eyes lifted. To a God who has all-sufficient grace, and the God who, under whose wings Ruth took refuge, and whose presence we have the opportunity to seek refuge as well. So if you have your Bible or a smartphone app, I'm going to read Ruth, Ruth verse 18 of chapter 1, which is kind of where we take off into, where Jordan left off and take off into my section. And when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, She said no more. Uh, It's estimated that the journey from Moab back to Bethlehem was probably about seven to ten days on foot. Not not just flat level ground. I'm going to lean on author Paul Miller in his book called A Loving Life to give us a picture of what the scene might have looked like as they returned to Bethlehem. You can kind of follow along if you want in verses 19 to 22 there. The two widows, dressed in black mourning garb, made their their way north down the Jordan Valley, then west past Jericho, up the steep escarpment along the desert path to the Judean highlands, and finally south to Bethlehem. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? Naomi? 
A better translation for the Hebrew word stirred is echoed with excitement. The town is abuzz. They haven't seen Naomi in 10 years. Questions tumble out. Is this Naomi? Where are her husband and sons? And who is this strange woman with her? So I'm going to try here. Naomi's buzzing excitement return home, which I'll kind of explain the context of Bethlehem at the time that'll help us understand that better, is much different from the, the, the move that Rose and Azariah, our oldest son, and myself made in 2008. We, we were here in, in the Minneapolis area. We moved to Orlando, Florida. We were gone for roughly four years. We moved back in 2012. And when we moved back, a good handful of our uh, extended family helped us, welcomed us, helped us move back in. A few friends helped us unpack the moving truck. And maybe, just maybe, another few friends even knew that we had arrived back in the Twin Cities after four years and might have sent us a text message or something. Starkly different. I mean, when you move around in the United States these days, especially for a number of years at a time, relationships have moved on when, you've, when you get back, for the most part. You, hopefully you'll have those few really key friends. Um, others have moved on themselves to new cities. Tons has changed. Paul Miller goes on to describe in his book how different Naomi's return to her hometown would be. Bethlehem, being a mid-sized city, would have only one main gate. So Naomi could not slip through a side gate unnoticed. Everything happened at this one main gate. It more or less combined Walmart, the Internet, and City Hall. Should have replaced Target there for us since we're in the Twin Cities here. Not many Walmarts. Um, But here is where we begin to feel this heaviness of Naomi's ongoing struggle to trust God as she returns. I really want you to try to feel with me. Now, I realize I've had lots of time to stew over these four verses. But feel with me her first words upon entering the city. Now, you remember what happened to her. Loss, pain, heartache, right? But still, she's back. Here's what happens. Her first words, Do not call me Naomi, which by the way means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty himself has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So so there's so much going on here that I will not be able to unpack. And this is why others have mined this book and had semester-long studies and all sorts of things. But here's a little context to consider to better understand. In Naomi's day, particularly among the people of God, lamenting losses like she faced was a regular part of life. This is a lost practice, at least in this country, and primarily among Christianity. I don't even know if we know, some of us might not even know what lament means. And that's okay. It just isn't a part of how we do life. But it's all over the scriptures. There's a whole book on it after Jeremiah. The Psalms are filled with lament. And 
I made a couple of other notes. Uh, I can't even remember. There's uh, Elijah, Moses, can't remember exactly where they were recorded. But you just have to trust it. It's full of lament. So if it's something you've never considered, take this story as a chance to consider what lament can do in the life of a believer. So when Naomi responds this way to the women of Bethlehem, because that's who's responding right there, the, the women of the town as she enters, I don't necessarily know that she's accusing the Almighty. Uh, not even sure she's angry with God. Both could be possible. Uh, I think she's recognizing the pain that when they turned and fled the house of bread to a place that was not to go and really away from God, however you want to deal with that sovereignty in your head and what God did, she's faced a lot of heartache because of it. And rather than stuffing her emotion and pain, which I and you uh, are, we do that quite often actually, I think she voiced it as she entered town. I mean, she wanted them to know how she was showing up. Paul Miller again, here's what he says. The church has not been particularly good at hearing laments from its broken people. Personally, I don't like listening to laments. They're disorderly. They're unnerving. I like things tidy. I do too, Paul. Laments break the pattern of seemingly appropriate politeness in prayer to God. They feel out of balance. And they are. When you're lamenting, you're broken from some sort of situation that has transgressed in your life and you usually don't have great words to describe how you're doing and feeling. And sometimes we don't know how to deal with people when they come to us like that. And we kind of start to separate ourselves from them because it's like, gosh, I don't know what to do with that person's stuff. But uh, Naomi's isn't the only uh, story unfolding here. Had I not had a lot of extra time in this, I have to admit I probably would have missed it too. Naomi says this, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. But what also do those four verses say? They returned. And at the end... uh, her daughter, the Moabite daughter-in-law with her. Ruth is standing right beside her, step by step. How would you like to be in her shoes for a moment? She didn't even recognize her. Has brought me back completely empty. That's what she says. Well, here's, here's what I think Ruth should have been able to say, but she didn't. She didn't lash out. This is probably how I would have responded. What do you mean you've come back empty? I left everything was, that was familiar for you, any hope of a future. I literally committed my life to yours. And this is how you introduced me to your people, Bethlehem? Not even in the least bit does Ruth respond this way. And as fact, as we can, uh, continue here, I think we're going to see the exact opposite Here's where me as not a, uh, and I I mean this with all uh, respect, Jordan is a great 
Bible expositor, he's a reader. That, that's not exactly me. But I will say that I think as I read through this book again and again, even though the writer specifically does not talk about Ruth's theology up to this point, she had a robust theology. You do not walk into town, have your mother-in-law basically not even, you're invisible to her, and then jump into chapter two the way that Ruth does. And I'll call it faith in action. That's, that's exactly, and, and I want to, so imagine, I, I guess for me I imagine her trust and love for Yahweh somehow grew, mysterious as it must have been in the past 10 years. She married into the family that Yahweh was their God. Um, I, I have to believe there was a drawing of her heart by God to himself that we just don't see in the text. So I just got to believe it because what you're going to see in chapter 2, you don't just live out faith without a robust, deep, and wide theology as she had. Paul Miller again. What do you know? I'm going to quote him again. On enduring love, here's what he says. You endure the way to love by being rooted in God. Your life energy needs to come from God, not the person you're loving. The more difficult the situation, the more you are forced into utter dependence on God. This is the crucible of love, where self-confidence and pride are stripped away because you simply do not have the power or the wisdom, believer, or the ability in yourself to love. We don't have it. You know, I know, without a shadow of doubt, that we can't love in our own power. This is the beginning of faith, knowing that you can't love. This is the beginning of faith, knowing that you can't love in your own power, okay? So she had a deep rooting, a deep connection, and as we're going to see, she sought refuge in God, and that's how she endured the walk through the gates and what's going to come her way. Um, I want to ask us this question. How are you bearing the cost that love demands in your relationships? Or to put it another way, when you've gone out of your way to love someone, to serve someone, only not to be thanked, maybe you've patiently endured alongside a loved one, is they've turned away from Jesus yet again. How do you respond? Have you given up on them? Do you harbor ill feelings towards that person? Do you vent to your friends about how hopeless the situation is? I think this is reality for us. This is bearing the cost of love, and these are the situations we find ourselves in. When your life turns out in a completely unexpected way and you find yourself asking, maybe now lamenting, Lord, where are you? I'm blinded by devastation and loss. Where do we turn? Let me share a couple of passages from the New Testament. Ephesians 4.2 encourages encourages us this way. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. 
in Colossians 3, 12 and 13, sticks it to us this way. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive each other. If anyone has a grievance against another, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So now back to the story. Remember when I said Ruth is displaying this enduring love? Here's some of the threads of how I see that being lived out. Immediately upon the start of chapter 2, Ruth says, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Now, I don't know how much time has passed since they arrived to town, but Ruth is more or less ready to get in action right away. She knows that apart from her doing something, they don't, they don't have provision. Again, there's no husband, there's no one to take care of them, provide, protect. So she says, this is what I'm going to go do. And I didn't write anything up. We, we could have spent a whole ton of time on this idea of gleaning. Um, but basically, the, the law said that leave the, the, the leftovers, like the stuff that falls off as you're harvesting, leave that for for orphans and widows and, and others to, to pick up. So I guess she knew enough of uh, her Bible, the, the conversation of the people of God in the day that, that she sets out to do that. Um, and then, uh, so one other thing that caught me, I think what happens when, she, when, when Ruth says, I'm not going to strike back at Naomi for not even recognizing me. And now Ruth is headed to the field. Naomi says, go, my daughter. I think God is beginning to revive her faith. She's lost sight. It's been difficult for Naomi. But this for me, she's like, okay, by faith I'm with you at least a little bit here, Ruth. And she says, go. Just a few verses earlier, right? Her future was completely hopeless, very bitter. If it, it was as if she was declaring, God is still my God, but his dealings with me are only calamity and only emptiness from here on out. So friends, this is, this is what I want to say. I don't know what the situation is for you, but it happens way too often to me, especially in my house when the five of us are just kind of getting under one another's skin and nerves, and I just, it's like all of a sudden I start going off the deep end over what, like just some disagreements or, you know, whatever's happened that, that day, the kids aren't getting along, I, may, I had a, say I had a fight with Rose, whatever it is, um, and I, I just go, so I, I want to say, try to put yourself in that situation for a second, and here's what I want to say to you. When you're ready to despair of life itself, whatever your situation is, maybe it's tonight, looking ahead to tomorrow, I want you one last time before you've given up on God to open your eyes, look around, and try to see how God has provided hope for you. Often, the hope is probably in a person near you. And often, that person can hope for you when you can't hope for yourself. I don't know how you're showing up here tonight, but 
but hopefully that's for someone. Done a lot of talking about Ruth and Naomi here, but what about the God of Naomi and Ruth? Oh, we would miss this story's main point and what the writer wants to get if we don't delve into this a bit. So again, Naomi had somehow forgotten on her travels back Elimelech's relative Boaz. God was at work during her absence in Bethlehem building up his life of faith and trust. One commentator puts it this way, Boaz possesses everything that Naomi and Ruth lack. Naomi has returned empty. Boaz is abundantly full. Right? We begin to see that. Okay, so here's where, um, look to me, uh, with me to verse 3. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. Again, picking up the leftovers. And she happened, is what my, the version of my Bible uses, to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Again, I don't want to read into it too much here. The fields might not have been massive outside of Bethlehem, but she just happens to stumble upon his field? God is orchestrating something here. He's ready to do, and Jordan pointed that at the end of his message last week to to the whole lineage of of where this heads to Jesus Christ, our great Savior. A more little translation could say, she chanced her chance to come upon. Now, we, we know it wasn't chance. Just think about that, okay? All right. So Boaz. God is, I believe, giving us a taste of what he is orchestrating all things for good here through Boaz's life as uh, he's about to, to come into contact with Ruth. So look at verse 4. The Lord be with you, he says to his, his servants in the field. The Lord bless you. Can you imagine walking into work tomorrow and that be the first thing <laughs> your employer says to you, your boss? I'm guessing it's probably not very common for you guys. And then your response, the Lord bless you. I just think he's walking out his faith. Boaz is walking out his faith. God has done so much behind closed doors. Um, He lives it out in the village and he lives it out in the fields he manages. His goal is to put God on display. Look with me to verse 5. He doesn't just greet his workers and take off to begin counting what's been harvested or maybe have coffee with the other land managers. He notices and he leans in. Whose young woman is this? I, th- I don't think it's an interrogation. I think it's this inquisitive like, who is this? Who is this among my, my reapers? Who's this young woman reaping in my field? So this begins to kind of set in motion verses 8 to 16 Wish I had, we're, 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 I'm already going to be uh, more past than I want to be. So I'm not going to read 8 to 16. I hope you guys are beginning to see, if nothing else, I would love for you to walk away today. And if you've never read this story, if you've never done some more in-depth study, begin to just let it uh, just roll over your life. Um, seep into who you are because it's, it's just full. It's really full. So let's see where we can get here with uh, the handful of, time, hand, handful of minutes we have left. All right. Well, I'll put it this way. 
I think we begin to see, to connect it to what Jesus says, you know, uh, remain in me, and, if I re- and I will remain in you, and you'll bear much fruit. He's going to bear much fruit through us, right? This is a, I'll call this a foretaste. God is bearing fruit through Boaz's life as Boaz loves God, trusts him. Kindness, generosity, shepherd-like protection just flow richly from his deep walk with God. Boaz took time to notice and inquire about Ruth. He didn't have to. And God's grander story continues to be put on display because he does that. Now, the writer doesn't record all the side conversations that happen in Bethlehem since Naomi returned. But as you can see uh, in verse thir- uh, 11, but Boaz answered, all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. So again, I don't, I don't know how that happened, when it happened, but he's heard of Ruth's abiding faith, her kindness, her committed love, her sacrifice towards Naomi. He must have seen this, this deep trust that she had. And here's what he says. The Lord repay you for what you've done. A full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel. And don't miss this, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. So we, we don't want to miss, uh, miss, or we don't want to walk away and go, I want to be more like Ruth. I want to be bold in my faith. I want to do more. I want to step out. That's not bad. But I think the greater thing that God wants us to see here is that we've got to be connected to him. She took refuge, remember, invisible, walking beside. That's the moment where you've got to be rooted in God. You've got to take refuge in him because in that moment, you're going to want to turn and just start cursing that person next to you out or whatever comes at you. You're going to need a refuge to hold on to. And that's what she's doing. And, and, and again, I, I really don't know here, but I, I wonder if Boaz was almost saying with this, I want to be a part of the answer. I want to be a part of the answer of what might happen to Ruth and Naomi, the prayer, the faith. Maybe, you know, that full reward, maybe, maybe, maybe he's... He is that. I don't know. Um, okay, let's head towards the finish line here. Just so much. Um, yeah, he just, God just, he keeps surprising me. That's, that's, what, that's what I, I mean, I, it's just so hard. I was like, what, what do you want me to say, Lord? There's just too much here. Um, so he, we have a former Moabite widow. She's risked everything. For a, for a potentially a hopeless future, and she's now sitting and dining with Boaz and all these people. Look with me in for, verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz says, come here, eat some bread, dip your morsel. When I think dip your morsel, I mean, he's saying, come in close. Like, be there right with me. She, you know, not sit over here. Like, get in here. 
I just, I just think this is mad. It's just huge. Um, so she sat beside the reapers, passed her the roasted grain. She ate until she was satisfied. I don't know if she's had a, I don't know where she's been in the journey. If she's had this satisfying meal for a while, maybe. There's some left over. And then Boaz can't contain himself. As, he, as they set back out, he's like, pull, start pulling stuff out of the harvest. I mean, she, she just, just give more to her. I don't even, I mean, I don't know if this is too much to say, but do we as Christian leaders, business owners, um, bosses in our, our companies, do we have this type of just, I want to just give and bless mentality? I don't know. That, I want you to think about that. But that's what he's doing in this moment. He's just saying, just lavishly provide for her. So she comes back to Naomi that evening. And as they're debriefing the day, Naomi is delighted in the kindness of the man who took notice of Ruth, as she says. And then he's revealed by Ruth as Boaz. Here's what it says. Blessed be the man who took notice of you. She tells her mother-in-law, the man who I worked with today was Boaz. And Naomi says, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Okay, so (laughs) we get a front row seat of God's pursuit for his people here, right? God is a God of, I mean, the the parable of the lost son. You think of the story. He comes after his people. He does not give up on us. And he extends his common grace to those who don't yet know him and haven't experienced his goodness. He wants to lavish his children when we're walking well with him and when we're struggling, when we can see his goodness clearly and, we can, and when we can't. So when you can't see his goodness clearly, when you want to give up, in that moment, you've got to remember, God, somehow, he's delighting in you in those moments. And that does not make sense to me in my human mind. But that's what the Bible's chock full of. This is the God of hope. And so I want to, I'll, I'll end it this way. The fog in which Naomi has been un- unable to see God's goodness in his plans is lifting, right? In referencing Boaz in the next verse, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. It's all of a sudden like she's woke up again. She couldn't... Okay, so either the writer doesn't give it to us earlier on or she just plain out forgot that she had this redeemer, one of Elimelech's relatives who could be the answer, who could be the hope for a future for them. So the fog begins to lift, and here's my paraphrase of what I think Naomi says to Ruth at the end of chapter 2. It's good, my daughter, for you to stay close to the young women in Boaz's field. God's making a way for us. Keep at it until the end of the barley and the wheat harvests. I can see it. 
His plans are always good. I'm an emotional guy. It's just, I, I, sometimes you just got to forgive me if that was paraphrasing the, the, the scripture too much, but I just think Ruth stuck by her side enough that the fog could lift. And she can begin to see clearly, spiritually clearly again. Ruth had hope for her when she didn't have any. Dear friends, when life gives us a bitter pill that we must swallow, oh, that we would turn to trusted brothers and sisters in the faith, that we would bank on the people of God to walk with us and to hope for us when we have no hope ourselves, that we would run with open arms and raw, unfiltered prayers to Jesus, somehow putting our trust in Him to see us through any and all adversities. This is what I'll call the gospel according to Ruth, and it's beautiful. God's done an amazing work. This is a project of Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com. Thank you.